Good morning. I'm reading this morning from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, again, from the ESV version. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is God's word. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, is the fifth beatitude. Out of eight that we're looking at, the beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, where he declared and really lays out in detail through Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5 and 6 and 7, the key to the good life, to the blessed life, those who truly are flourishing, as one commentator once put it. Now, the first Beatitudes, the first four, actually, so we're, we're halfway through now, the first four Beatitudes, to be spiritually poor, to mourn, to be meek, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, How are those first four Beatitudes displayed in a person? The person who's truly blessed, who is truly flourishing, how do you see those basically internal qualities, right? How do you see spiritual poverty in someone? How do you see someone hungering and thirsting for righteousness? They're largely internal qualities. How do you see those things expressed practically in somebody's life? in a person's relationship with other people, in a, person, in a person's relationship and impact upon the world and the people around them. Those are the next four Beatitudes. What Jesus is doing now is he's transitioning from identity to impact. First four Beatitudes are really about a person's position before their creator. And now what you're going to see is this transition to how do those essential qualities now impact a person's influence on the people in the world around them? Your dealings with others by necessity reflect your own relationship with God. To be merciful, as Jesus understood it, does not mean to be humanitarian. It does not mean to be philanthropic. It does not mean to be a nice guy. It does not mean to be a pushover. 
Mercy, as Jesus understood it, is this. It's, it's having an active compassion for other people. Mercy is compassion in action for others. Now, you may be thinking, well, isn't that philanthropy? Isn't that humanitarianism? Isn't, isn't that social justice? Isn't that just being a nice person? Hold on. Compassion for others in response to God's compassion for you. That's mercy. A compassion for others in response to God's compassion for you is what mercy in Christianity is all about. And the greatest type of mercy that you see in the Bible is maybe the hardest, the hardest thing to do. It is so hard to do that it is impossible to do without an alien grace, without an outside grace coming into you, filling you up. And once that happens, it is completely attainable to do with God's grace. It's forgiveness. The greatest type of mercy revealed in God's story in the Bible is forgiveness. A forgiven heart is a forgiving heart, a merciful heart. Out of all the expressions of mercy that we have in the world and in Christianity, I'm going to focus on the main one today. It's forgiveness. And I want to talk about the nature of mercy. I want to talk about the habits of mercy. And I want to talk about the source of mercy. So what mercy is, what it looks like practically in our lives, and where it comes from. That's today. Now, mercy is, simply put, the grace of God in action. God's grace in action for people in human history. When David, uh, the shepherd singer, penned these words in his famous song in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, that Hebrew word for mercy is often translated in many other places in the Old Testament as steadfast love or loving kindness. Those are very powerful words. Those were covenant words. That's covenant language. That's, that's God saying, because I love you, I am committed to you no matter what the cost. I love you, but now that I love you, my actions are going to prove it again and again. David was saying, mercy is following me. All the day. God's covenant love, God's persistent, never-failing love is pursuing me, chasing me all the days of my life, and I'll dwell in his house forever. God's covenant love pursues a person at whatever the cost. And many centuries later, the prophet Nehemiah remembered this. In his great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, his great prayer to God, asking God to forgive his people for centuries of apostasy and sin and injustices, Nehemiah remembers how again and again and again, his people, his ancestors would turn away from God and then, and then they'd get into big trouble and God would come and save them and relieve them and be kind to them. And this cycle happened again and again and again. And, and in the middle of that prayer, Nehemiah, Nehemiah said these words, nevertheless, it is your great mercies. It, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. 
in the Bible, the, the, best, the best way to put it biblically, what mercy is from the Bible's perspective in general is this. Mercy is God's kindness and patience for sinners. That's where the concept of mercy starts. How is grace different from mercy? How, actually, how is mercy different from grace? Whereas grace is God's response to our sin, mercy is God's response to our misery. We're not just sinners. Our sin makes us and the world miserable. And so in general, God's grace, his, his unmerited love and favor responds to our sin, but God's mercy practically helps us by responding to our misery is how Martin Lloyd-Jones put it. And actually, James Boyce summed it up really well when he said, grace is love when love is undeserved. Mercy is grace in action. Mercy is love reaching out to help those who are helpless and who need salvation. Mercy identifies with the miserable in their misery. And I think at this point in our series on the Beatitudes, it's a good time to say that the Beatitudes are not natural temperaments that some people happen to have and exhibit. You cannot be like any of the Beatitudes by chance or by your particular personality or by your home training or upbringing or associations with other people. These are not natural qualities that some people simply, oh, that guy is just so meek. That, that gal is just so hungry and thirsty for righteousness. I wish I could be like that, but God's given me other qualities. No. If you're truly following Jesus, all of these should be true of you by his grace alone. And I, I think blessed are the merciful is a great example of that. Ask yourself a question. Can somebody be naturally merciful? Can you be naturally a merciful person? Well, at first you may go, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you can like, just gentle and generous and patient and forgiving and bearing with people and overlooking things again and again and again when people do things to you. Yeah, you can be naturally merciful. Hold on, though. God is merciful. The Bible says that God is merciful. So whatever being merciful means, it at least has to start with the definition of mercy as God himself is merciful. So let's raise the standard of what it means to be a merciful person to the standard of God is merciful. So is somebody naturally merciful? Does somebody naturally demonstrate perfect patience and forgiveness? Does somebody naturally make their enemies their friends? No. Someone is merciful, uh, and by the way, all of the Beatitudes apply here. Someone is merciful because God gives them a new nature. And they become merciful like him out of that new nature. When the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians 2, this is a famous passage for people, he, told, he tells Christians, you know, you were by nature naturally objects of God's wrath and disappointment and anger because of your sin. But God, he went on to say, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, Paul said. 
And what I'm trying to do is apply that to the concept of mercy. Spiritually dead people cannot be merciful as God is merciful. No matter how generous and patient and kind they appear to be because of their natural personality. They're not merciful like God is unless he spiritually awakens them to be like him. And so the Apostle Paul would follow this up. In his letter to, sec- to, the, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, he would say, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Another translation says, therefore, because of God resuscitating us spiritually, we regard everybody from a different point of view now. With their new nature, those who are blessed, those who are truly flourishing, see people from a different point of view now. With their, because of their new nature, they now see their enemies as no longer people who should be punished and crushed or ignored, but as fellow sinners in need of spiritual liberation, in need of divine forgiveness, just like they are. Martin Lloyd-Jones put Jesus' fifth beatitude in his own words by saying this, and I think it sums up what we're saying so far really well. Because they have already obtained mercy, therefore they are merciful. Because the blessed have already obtained mercy, therefore they are merciful people. God's love in action for you by necessity, translates into a love in action for other people. Again, identity leads to impact. How you see yourself, how you identify yourself, whether you comprehend the mercy of God for you will directly impact how you relate to others. Identity leads to impact. Now, here's what mercy actually looks like. Picture one person relieving a tremendous burden off of another person's shoulders, a burden that that other person cannot lift by themselves. Mercy looks like relieving burdens from people who cannot remove those burdens from themselves. So in kids' sports, there's a mercy rule. You ever heard of the mercy rule in Little League? And it, it continues until they get bigger into their in, you know, middle, middle school. And then it, it, the mercy rule is this. If one team is crushing another team, if, if, if the difference in score is huge, the ref, the umpire, calls the game. The game is over. You win. You lose. But let's, let's put you out of your misery, right? The, the, the idea there is, is so that the misery of the losing team and their parents can end. Uh, The burden is lifted immediately. Okay, so mercy rule, but on a cosmic level, okay? Um, All around us, throughout human history and all around us today, people are carrying burdens that they cannot remove from themselves, by themselves. Slaves, those who are in slavery, those who are in forced labor, those who are trafficked against their will, cannot liberate themselves politically or physically. 
a young, single, pregnant woman below the poverty line with three other children to care for cannot simply go to college and earn a degree and get a job and start climbing out of the hole that she's in. Burdens that people carry all around us that they can't remove from themselves. Of course, the social aspect of mercy has always been a central byproduct of the Christian mindset. Um, our, our society, as secular as it is becoming, our society's priorities for equality and justice and service are all indebted to biblical Christianity. Throughout history, the church has been ahead of the world in mercy, anti-slavery and abolition, anti-trafficking endeavors, supporting and, and promoting women's rights, protecting the dignity of the unborn or the aging, instituting and setting up hospitals and nursing homes and orphanages, all influenced by biblical Christianity. You know, for every instance of the Bible being misinterpreted to fuel human hatred, there are myriad examples of the Bible inspiring care and service and justice and reconciliation initiated by merciful people who were changed by a merciful message, which we call the gospel and the biblical story. But I really don't want to focus on social justice, the, the social aspect, the public aspect of mercy today. I want to focus on the key the key, because that, that is all flowing from something else. If we don't get this other thing right, the social justice aspects of mercy are, are, they're floating around without any moorings. They don't have a foundation. And here's what it is. All around you, people are carrying another type of burden that they cannot remove themselves. It's the debt that they owe you for hurting you. The clearest expression of mercy, the clearest, most profound proof that mercy has changed you is your willingness to forgive. When we read the Apostles' Creed once a month, one of the little phrases that we quite overlook, because we get excited about the I believe in the resurrection from the dead and things like that, is we say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. We say that. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And that's a two-way street. The way God, I believe that God has forgiven me. And I believe that I am called to forgive others in response. Remember, mercy is love in action. Mercy does something. Mercy moves toward some type of relief. Saying you forgive someone and then doing nothing yourself to help repair the broken relationship, even if it's their fault, even if they were asking for it, even if they deserve what they're getting or what they're dealing with. Saying, I forgive somebody, and then doing nothing to help repair the relationship, even do most of the repair in the relationship, is not forgiveness. It is not merciful at all, because you're leaving that burden on their back to carry it alone. Woe to those who do not think that they are called to practice forgiveness. Even for the mature Christian, 
There remain dark, hidden corners of our lives where we remain unmerciful. So refusing to call back or email back or text back somebody you're angry with is harboring an unmerciful spirit. Allowing your bitterness for an ex-spouse or an ex-in-law to poison your children's and grandchildren's opinions of that person is an unmerciful spirit. Now, at this point, you're saying, oh, Jesus, Jesus, you're going too far. What if I've been cheated? What if I've been robbed? What if I've been sued? What if I've been bullied? What if I've been abused? What if I've been raped? Now you're telling me I still have to forgive? I mourn with you. I mourn with you for what you have lost, for what you have, for what you have walked through, my friend. Your loss and their sin have cost you so much. And you may never fully recover in this lifetime. But a merciful heart does an amazing thing. The merciful heart says to itself at some point, the merciful heart gets to this, this place. The merciful heart says to itself, my sins cost God even more. Even more than what I've had to go through. If God forgave me so much, I am free to forgive far less. Corey Ten Boom had been preaching about forgiveness after the Second World War. She had been telling Europe to forgive the Nazis. She herself, who, who you know, her and her family had been imprisoned for harboring Jews. Uh, they had suffered in a work camp. Her sister and father had died there. And she had gone around preaching a message of forgiveness. Until one day after she had talked about forgiveness, a man walked up to her and she recognized him immediately. He was a former SS officer in uh, the, the labor camp where, where she uh, was suffering. Uh, she recognized him immediately. He had a big smile on his face. He apparently had become a converted Christian. And he, he approached her to thank her for her message. And, and he said to her, isn't it wonderful that, that God has forgiven me for my sins? And, 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 and when he went to thank her, he reached out his hand to, to shake her hand. And she wrote this, his hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people, the need to forgive kept my hand at my side. Even as, ang even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? I mean, she went, seeing this man, it brought the whole, it brought the concentration camp, it brought everything back to her. And she was filled with a hatred. She couldn't shake his hand. And then she realized, I am asking more than the death of Christ in my relationship with somebody who has hurt me. You see, there is, re, there, is there is a residue of unforgiveness in all of our stories. And we all have more to learn about 
mercy. But the source of mercy is available to anybody who knows that they need it. You realize that you're not as merciful as you should be? You realize you're not as merciful as Jesus is? The source of mercy is available to you if you know you need it. It is a mercy in itself that the God of mercy made the first move in being merciful. Sometimes showing mercy practically is just making the first move in a broken relationship. Who cares who started it? Make the first move. That alone is merciful, and that's exactly what God did. Paul said in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in the book of Revelation, it was to Christians. It was to people who already thought they were following Jesus that Jesus said, behold, I stand at the door and knock. There's that covenant love again, chasing after you, pursuing you, all the days of your life. Jesus saying to you, I stand at the door and knock. Remember, love is, I'm sorry, mercy is love in action. It does something. Mercy pursues people. Christ pursued you to relieve you of your debt to God that you couldn't pay. Now you pursue others in his name. And I'm not going to project this. I just want you to hear the words of the Apostle Paul to you through Colossians chapter 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So Corey Ten Boom had no love for this guy while she stood there, no love for him because of what she put, what he put her and her family through. She went on to write, I tried to smile. I try I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he calls us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. And here's my encouragement to us today. Ask for God's help to forgive other people. You don't have it in yourself? Okay. It is a joy to me that you realize you're not merciful enough. The worst thing is for God to leave you with an unwillingness to be merciful. The worst thing is for somebody to not know 
that they have a hard time forgiving people. It is a blessing. It is the grace of God that you can even realize, wow, I have a hard time forgiving people. Or I have a hard time forgiving that person. Or I have a hard time forgiving these types of situations. So ask God to to give you his power to forgive people for your deepest hurts or to forgive people for the most frequent hurts. Ask Jesus, the man of mercy, to be the source of mercy for your own misery, for your own misery, and watch him bless you. Watch him bless you with God's forgiveness for you, for you. It has to start there. Let Jesus bless you with God's forgiveness for you and then in turn fill you with a capacity to forgive others. That's what it means when Jesus said, blessed are the merciful for they shall be given mercy. They know they already have it. And so they are moved to a life of forgiveness. A forgiven heart is a forgiving heart, a merciful heart. Ken Sandy said, forgiving somebody sets a prisoner free. And then you discover you were the one in prison. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now the Beatitudes are getting way too personal for us. Father, now it is hard to follow Jesus. Now it is hard to listen to his words that condemn our unmerciful hearts. Father, we ask for your gentle forgiveness even still. We confess to you that we have very long memories. We confess to you that even if we forget the wrongs done to us, that even if we overlook and bear the wrongs done to us, we suffer from a pride that puts ourselves above others. Father, I ask that you would truly make us merciful like you are merciful by your grace alone. Thank you for Jesus' promise that those whom God pursues will be shown mercy. And that from a new identity, a new spirit given to them by your grace, they can become merciful people. Lord, I pray that that would be true in our relationships and marriages and friendships and parenting and working relationships with those who supervise us, with those whom we supervise. And Lord, especially with one another, help us, help us to pursue one another. Help us, Father, to initiate, to initiate, even if we have not caused the primary hurt. Father, we long to show the community and the world what it looks like to live by mercy. May it be done, Father, for your glory. Amen.